is more, less is more. The idea of this is that we have a lot of, in today's, today's church world, we have a lot of Bible knowledge. You know, you can, you can get the Bible anywhere you want, any way you want. There's so much information. There's so many good preachers. There's so many good books. There's, I mean, we really have no excuse. And yet, we are very, in my view, disobedient to most of, it, most of the Bible. I mean, we're, our, level, our level of education far exceeds our level of obedience. You know, we, 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 we obey the things in the Bible that we like. We, we play around with the rest. You know, we're, so we have so much knowledge, uh, but we put so little of it into practice. And sometimes the, the adage, which is a marketing adage, uh, less is more is true. Sometimes the, the, just taking a little book of the Bible like we're going to do today and really learning what it means and really trying to actually practically apply it to our lives, just a little book of the Bible can make such a huge, huge difference. Uh, so I'm just convinced that our level of knowledge sometimes sometimes actually creates a barrier and we, we just turn into big, big intellectual, you know, big book of all it is is intellectual, but are we actually putting it into practice? So we're gonna, we're gonna do that over the next couple of weeks uh, some more, but taking these little tiny books of the Bible. So last, last week we did the book of Ruth, which is actually four chapters long, and that was sort of a little detour, but it's still a very short book in the Bible for Mother's Day. And the week before that, we started with Second John. Do you remember? So Second John is part of, well, it's a series of things that John wrote, and we're not even sure that John actually wrote it, but we're pretty sure that he wrote it. And that's because this writer, and we see him in the New Testament, you know, we call it First John and Second John and Third John, in the Gospel of John, we see similarities in the way these books are written. We see similar language, we see similar style, and we put the pieces of the puzzle together and we say, yeah, we're pretty sure that John, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, one of the accounts of the life of Jesus, he also wrote three short books. Uh, we're not gonna cover 1 John because it's five chapters. But well, we did 2 John, and today we're going to do 3 John. So if you're new to the Bible, you say, I'm confused with all these Johns. You know, there's a lot of Johns. Just use your table of contents, all right? We're looking at 3 John today. This is a specific letter uh, that this person wrote to a specific person. So if you remember in, in 2 John, uh, we talked about these themes that John circles around over and over and over again. He talks about truth, and you'll see truth in this letter as well. He talks about lies, and he talks about love. And you see him circle around these themes over and over and over again, really starting in the Gospel of John, then in 1 John and 2 John and 3 John. He just keeps repeating, repeating, and repeating and going around these themes in different ways. He uses other other themes as well, like light and darkness and very dramatic, very uh, strong imagery that he uses, okay? Um, so in Second in John, we have a letter written to a church. In Third John, we have a letter written to a person in a church. So I'm gonna read, read this letter to you in full. It's only 14 verses. 
uh, and then we're just going to learn some practical things for us uh, today, all right? So this is 3 John from the Bible's New Testament. You can find it in your electronic Bible, your paper Bible, whatever, whatever works for you. The elder, he doesn't name himself, but this is the writer, the elder to my friend Gaius whom I love in the truth. You see love and truth right off the bat there in verse one. So this is a letter directed to a specific person. You say, what's this got to do with my life? Just wait and you'll see. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you even as your soul is getting along well. This is pretty typical for a first century letter in that time. There would be a general well-wish of health and prosperity and this kind of thing. Uh, I have seen people take this verse and push it way beyond that and say, well, you know, it's God's will for you to always be healthy. You see, 3 John verse 2, and that all may go well with you all the time. You see, 3 John verse 2, well, if you live life for a little bit of time, you will see that it doesn't always go well with you and you're not always in good health. So this is a general this is a typical first century greeting in a letter, um, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing that he wishes good health and prosperity on his friend Gaius, for sure, but this is what it is. It's a greeting. It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth. There you see truth again, telling how you continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they are strangers to you. I'll explain what this means in a few moments. They have told the church about your love. Please send them on their way in a manner that honors God. It was for the sake of the name, and that would be the name of Jesus, that they went out receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such people so that we may work together for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, remember that name, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us, not satisfied with that. He even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. You say, what is this? I'll explain in a moment. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone. This is another person, not Diotrephes, but Demetrius. And even by the truth itself, there you see truth again. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you, standard closing of a letter. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings Greet the friends there by name. What in the world does this have to do with your life today? Oh my goodness, there's so much in here. This is a letter to a church member. 
Uh, his name is Gaius, and that's pretty easy to understand. But what's, what's really going on here, really, really fast, is you have this elder, we call him John, he never identifies himself, and he appears to be in charge of or have authority over, and you can see that from all three letters that he wrote, a network of churches. And they're probably house churches. They're probably small churches that meet in homes. This, is, this was typical in the first century. And he appears to be overseeing these kinds of churches back then. And he's writing directly to one of his friends there, whose name is Gaius, and he's very thrilled with Gaius. He, he loves Gaius. He may have led Gaius personally to Christ because he calls him his child. Uh, but then he shifts gears and he talks about a particular situation that's going on in the church that Gaius is a part of. And there appears to be somebody else in that church and that somebody else's name is Diotrephes. And Diotrephes is a really interesting character, but he is causing a problem there in that he is refusing to welcome a group of visitors who go to visit that church. They're probably kind of missionaries, evangelists, pastors type people who were floating around at that time. And hospitality was a very, very big deal at that time. And this guy, Diotrephes, does not want them to come into his home does not want them to come into the church wherever it met. And he seems to be for, um, he seems to be a church leader, but he's, he's in conflict with, with John for sure. And he loves to be first. And he's gossiping maliciously and he kicks people out of this, this church say, why would he do that? That's the strangest thing. Well, it, it goes on. And, and John, he says, you know, look, don't imitate what is evil, but what is good. And then he mentions somebody else in the church named Demetrius. And Demetrius seems to be a, a good guy. And, and then he closes the letter. Now you say, well, what relevance again? <laughs> you know, what, what relevance does this have to do with my life today? Oh, it has a lot of relevance. Let me break it down for you. Okay. Number one, uh, first First concern of the elder of John, the, the health of the church that he's overseeing from a distance was the priority for him. You see it in verse four and five. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are sitting in the truth. No, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So these are Christ followers he's referring to with his word children, and they're walking in the truth. They're following Jesus by their actions. And for John, this, is, this gives him the greatest joy. This is the most important thing for him. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking, behaving, living, talking, Christianly. They're following after the name of Jesus and they are walking, they're doing something, they're active, their, their behavior is changing and I have no greater joy than that. Now this strikes me as very, very odd but very important for us today 
because today in the 21st century, in the, in the modern church, at least, at least in the West, if not many parts of the world, this, this uh, concern of John, I'm not so sure that it's, that it's the most important thing. Because today, what, what people think about and talk about when it comes to church is how big is it and how much money is it making? How, just tell me how many people come and what's the budget. And then I'll tell you if the church is a good church. If it's big and it's expensive, it's good. <laughs> okay, so again, this is first century. These are a bunch of house churches. There's no discussion about how big is it and how much budget does it bring in. This is not the concern of this man who's overseeing all of these people. We don't even know how many there were. Probably small. I mean, maybe the church that he's addressing is our size, maybe even smaller. And his concern is, my children are walking in the truth. That's his concern. Now, don't get me wrong. Numbers aren't bad. Budget isn't bad. Hey, you know, I'd love it if it was triple the amount of people and triple the budget or whatever. We had a horrific first quarter. If financially, okay, that's, that's fairly normal. Like, I'd love it. I, numbers are, I have no problem with numbers. But if, if the concern is how big is it and how much does it cost, all the time, all the time, you, do you know what that is? That's, that's not found in the pages of the New Testament. It, the, the concern that, that, that John has and the concern that we should have as part of the modern church is, are we healthy followers of Jesus or not? Are we walking in the truth or not? Uh, it's, we're not a corporation, okay? Sure, there's, you know, the CRA said yes and all that, and, but that, that's all administrative stuff, okay? That's, that's, that's just the culture that we live in. But the concern is, are we walking in the truth? And again, I say this because... There's so much competition, especially even in this province. There's so much competition, and it's, it seems to be this obsession. How big is it, and how much does it cost? And John's obsession was, are we walking in the truth? The church health is imperative. The health of your soul sitting in the seat this morning. That is the concern. That is the priority. Are we truly being changed by Jesus? Or are we just going through the motions? Is it making any difference in your life at all? This is what bothers me as a pastor. Not how big is it and how much does it cost? Is it making a difference in our lives? Or are we just wasting our time? This was a concern for John. It's first and foremost on his mind. Number two, and this is really critical that you get this because I find a lot of church people are really naive, okay? I don't mean to insult you, but a lot of church people are naive. In church life, in life in general, there are good guys and there are bad guys. There are good girls and there are bad girls, if you want to think of it that way. There, there are good people and there are bad people, my friends. You say, what? What are you talking? I'm telling you. That, you know, it's funny. We teach our children this, you know, little, little kids. We tell them, don't talk to 
strangers. We teach our children, there are, there are bad people in this world. And this is how you spot them, and this is what you do when you see them. We teach our children this, but then we grow up, and, we, and, and then we, we, st- we go to church, and we think everybody is, we, that's so naive, okay? People are people, and there are good people, and there are bad people. You say, what do you mean, good and bad? Isn't everybody sort of good? Aren't they kind of born good? And then, you know, aren't they born with a kind of clean slate? And then maybe over time they start getting, well, not according to the Bible. According to the Bible, we're born, created in God's image, but kind of bent. There's this thing inside of us that bends us over time towards sin. But I'm not talking about that even. I'm saying, uh, you know, just, just between us kind of thing, we tend to compare ourselves with ourselves and we say, well, I'm a good person. You know, I'm nice to people. I don't try to hurt people. I don't try to lie to people. I don't try to manipulate people. I don't try to, you know, I'm not a destroyer. I'm a a good person. Okay, well, if you compare yourself to other people, fine, fine. But there are bad people. (laughs) There are good guys and there are bad guys. And in in this letter that's 14 verses, he mentions quite a number of people very, very quickly, 14 verses, and he's talking about good guys and one bad guy, okay? And even in the church, I just need to tell you, because some people, they, they, they're part of a church for a little while, and then they meet a bad guy, or they meet a bad girl, and they, are, they naively think that that person should be behaving differently than they are, and the person is a destroyer, they're a liar, they're a manipulator, they're all these things, and they're there to, to hurt. They're not there to help, they're there to hurt. You say, how could they? They're part of a church. What, what? They're people. And in life, you meet good people, you meet bad people. So there are good guys uh, in this. We have the elder who's, who's writing the letter. We have Gaius who, who receives the letter. And Gaius, a very common name in that, in that time. There are several Gaiuses in the book of Acts, so we don't know which one this is, if it's even the same one. There's Demetrius, who's mentioned just in passing at the end of the letter. He seems to be a good guy. There are the brothers, and these are these sort of traveling pastors, evangelists, missionaries, who, who John wants uh, uh, people to welcome them in their homes. You know, contrary to Second John, where you had people traveling around, but they were denying who Jesus was. And John says, you don't welcome those people. But you're, he's saying, welcome these people. These are the good guys. So these are the brothers. So you have those good guys, but then you have this one bad guy. And his name is Diotrephes. And Diotrephes, if you'll get this, Diotrephes is a church leader. You say, how can a church leader be a bad, a bad guy? How can that be? Well, people are people, okay? And, and sometimes, sometimes people, you know, they can lead in, in a church setting or in any setting, and they can, in their heart of hearts, actually be a bad guy. They can be on the wrong end of things. And this doesn't only apply to church life. Your office, your school, your classroom, your sports team, your family, you can be anywhere where people gather, anywhere where you have relationships with people. There are good guys and there are bad guys. Don't be naive. I could keep you here for hours. And probably if I told you the stories of some of the things that I have seen in the church world, 
Okay, it's just speaking very generically and very broadly because I don't want to get myself in trouble here. But I could keep you here for hours and you would probably be so shocked at some of the things. You would be stunned, shocked, disillusioned. I'm not sure what. But you hang around long enough, even in church life, you're going to see good guys, you're going to see bad guys. So let me, let me give you a character sketch of this, this bad guy in the church who's a leader in the church um, and, and uh, fill in some, some blanks here. But John tells us some things uh, in verses 9 and 10. Uh, this is what I would call a toxic leader. He's a, he's a leader in the church, but he's toxic. He is poison. He's a bad guy. And John will actually use the word evil to describe him. He'll say later, do not imitate what is evil, implicitly saying that Diotrephes is behaving in an evil fashion, but what is good. So he's a toxic leader. Some of you, you work with toxic people. You work for toxic people. Hopefully you are not a toxic person. Okay, I know pretty well everybody in the room and I don't think any of you are toxic. Toxic people are rare, but there are toxic people. They're toxic. I mean, they're poison. They, they destroy other people's lives. And sometimes they seem like they even enjoy doing so. You ever met a person like that? The odds are you have. The odds are you have. Again, they're not that frequent, but the odds are that you have. And here's one right here, and he's a church leader. Go figure, a church leader. So Diotrephes, verse 9, clue number 1, who loves to be first. So he says, I wrote to the church, presumably the same church that Gaius attends is, is being spoken of here, but Diotrephes got the letter. Hmm. Whatever letter it was, we're not sure. It's not referring to this letter. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, and this would have been about welcoming these brothers, these traveling pastors, evangelists. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, Diotrephes, who loves to be first, he will not welcome us. Hmm. Now, there are all kinds of theories as to why Diotrephes was this way. Uh, one that's really interesting it has to do with his name. His name is very uncommon that time so Gaius was a common name Demetrius is a common name John's a common name Diotrephes is a very uncommon name back then is reserved for the highbrow aristocracy kind of uh, 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 families so some uh, scholars say well this Diotrephes he thought he was better than everybody else because of his pedigree because of his background and that's why he loves to be first. But we're not sure. But he loves to be first and he will not welcome us. And he's not welcoming any of these traveling missionaries, pastors, evangelists. So when I come, John says, I'm going to call him out. I'm going to call attention to what he's doing. What else is he doing? He's spreading malicious nonsense about us. He's not even satisfied with that. So he loves to be first, number one. He, he, he's not welcoming. He's not hospitable to these people, number two. I'm going to challenge him when I get there. Uh, but he's also spreading malicious nonsense. So he's a gossiper. He's not even happy with that. But he refuses to welcome other believers. He's a church leader. <laughs> he refuses to welcome other believers. What kind of church leader is that? And, and he also stops those who want to do so. 
So he doesn't want other believers coming into his church for whatever reason, perhaps so he can control it. But he's also going to stop people who welcome other people into the church. Imagine. Imagine if I got up here and told you, don't welcome people here. Be as unwelcoming as you can. Thank you very much. You'd probably say, something wrong with you. You've, you've, well, this Diotrephes, he's getting away with it. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Get out. If you're going to be welcoming, get out. I'm in charge here. You get the personality sketch a little bit just from a couple of verses, all right? So, so fast forward 21st century. Let me read to you from an, an article from um, Tom Rayner. Tom Rayner, we use his, his material for our membership uh, content. Uh, he's, he's a very, very seasoned church leader, um, has done consulting for several hundred churches uh, over the years, uh, very well respected in terms of leadership issues, uh, church growth, church planting, these kinds of things. Uh, he's a former CEO of Lifeway uh, in the U.S., if you know that organization, uh, very, very large. And he has a great little uh, article here that, that kind of um, fills in the blanks of, um, of Diotrephes and his personality. Maybe you work with somebody like this. Uh, maybe you go to school with somebody like this. They're in your classroom. They're on your sports team. Maybe they're in your family. <laughs> you say, how could they be? Like, how could I have a toxic person in my family? Well, you, you can't choose your family, can you? So it could be, could be. But see if you recognize any of these traits. Um, and it, it kind of amplifies what we read in verses 9 and 10. So this is Tom Rayner's 14 symptoms of toxic church leaders. Could be a leader in any organization, okay? Uh, toxic, toxic. Number one. They rarely demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. They rarely show that. They rarely demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. Number two, they seek a minimalist structure of accountability. So they are not accountable and they create a structure where they can do whatever they want in the whatever it is, office, sports team, classroom, whatever, the group of people that's meeting the church, they create a minimalist structure of accountability so they can get away with things and nobody's going to, to catch them. Um, they expect behavior of others that they don't expect of themselves. So they tell other people they want this, 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 this done but they themselves don't do it. <laughs> so you see a little bit of hypocrisy in that type of toxic leader. Number four, they see almost everyone as inferior to themselves. You will hear them criticizing other leaders while building themselves up. So you get into a conversation with them, they'll criticize other people, but they'll build themselves up at the same time. Very, very self-important um, and uh, everybody else around them, they view as, as inferior because they feel that they're superior to everybody else. Number five, they show favoritism. They have a favored few. Typically, it's the few who do whatever they say <laughs> and who are on their side and never say no to them. And they favor those people and they marginalize and push out the rest. They don't listen to them. They don't have time for them. They push them away but they surround themselves with people 
who uh, become their, their favorites because they can get what they want that way. Number six, they have frequent anger outbursts. Um, and this is often when they don't get what they want. If you, if you observe them and you see they didn't get what they want, watch out, they're gonna pop, they're gonna throw a fit. You know, it's the boss at work. Oh, and they don't get what they want. This type of leader explodes. Everybody hold on tight because the explosion is coming. Uh, number seven, and by the way, you know how many times over the years, I don't know how many people have talked to me about situations at work, friends, family, relationships, where this is the exact kind of person that they're dealing with. Over and over and over and over again, I've heard it so many times. They say, and, it, and toxic people aren't that common, but they have quite an impact. They have quite a destructive impact in people's lives, especially when they're leading others. Uh, they say one thing to some people, number seven, they say one thing to some people, but different things to others. You know what that's called? Lying, <laughs> okay? They lie. They lie all the time. And when you observe them and you watch them, you begin to do the, the math and you say, oh, that's called lying is what that is. One thing is said to somebody here and another thing is said to somebody over there and talking about the same issue, so that's called lying. Number eight, they seek to dismiss or marginalize people before they attempt to develop them. So for the toxic leader, people are just a pawn in their hands. They're a means to an end. They see them as projects. They certainly don't see them as God's people who need to be developed and mentored. They're just pieces of, uh, uh, like a, on a chessboard, just pieces of people that you move around. It's a very narcissistic kind of way of, of, um, of dealing with people. Uh, so they, they'll dismiss, they'll marginalize people, uh, they're not important before they even try to develop them. Number nine, they manipulate. They're very manipulative, these toxic leaders. This, their most common tactic is to use partial truths to get their way. So tell a half-truth, get the person to do what you want them to do for you. They can manipulate people. Number 10, they lack transparency. Um, they're rarely transparent uh, because if they get caught abusing their power, they're going to have to give it up. So you can't see what's going on. They're not transparent. They're not an open book before you. Number 11, they do not allow for pushback or disagreement. When someone in the room disagrees, he becomes the victim or she becomes the victim of the leader's anger and the leader pushing them aside. So you don't dare disagree with the toxic leader or you will pay the price. Number 12, they surround themselves with yes people. So their inner circle of people always say yes to them. And they find the people who will say yes to them and they surround themselves with these yes yes people always always say yes because they can always get their way through these people who they have chosen number 13 they communicate poorly and they do so intentionally so they only give bits and pieces of information uh, because if they give clear communication it will become transparent and if it becomes transparent then they can get caught doing something so they keep their communication very vague very hard to understand, very obtuse. And lastly, uh, and finally, number 14, they are self-absorbed. Diotrephes, who loves to be first. 
Uh, they, they probably don't even see all of these traits in their own personal lives because they're so self-absorbed and so selfish. This is the toxic leader. And this is very much like what John was dealing with with this, with this character, Diotrephes. You may work with them, you may work for them, you may be in a any kind of group, classroom, setting, family, sports team, whatever it may be, and you may, you may just well have a Diotrephes on your team there. They may be in charge even. Uh, do you remember Jesus said, he who, he who wants to be first shall be last, and he who's last shall be, talking about service there, not so with Diotrephes. He wants to be numero uno, right? He's the guy who's, he's the one. He's, he's in charge. He's the boss. He's the typical toxic leader. Uh, what are we supposed to do with these people, with these toxic leaders? Do we say, oh, time to quit this job and go somewhere else? <laughs> Time to leave this thing and go somewhere else. Time to get out or get out of the way. Don't have time for this toxic, destructive personality. Well, interesting, John's, John's take on it is not to run. Um, John, he commends Gaius because Gaius is welcoming. Gaius practices hospitality. He commends this other fellow, Demetrius. But about Diotrephes, he says, when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing. I will call him out. So we're not to run from this type of person. Confront. He, John is going to confront him. He's not going to ignore him, nor is he, does he want people to imitate Diotrephes, but he is going to confront him. He's going to go face to face to him, and he's going to say, you, sir, are out of, out of line. You are out of order in what you are doing. Interesting, he's not saying, get out of there. Go find another church or whatever. He's not saying that. He says, when I come, I'm going to call him out. And then he says, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Implication, you confront evil leadership. You do not imitate evil leadership. You don't imitate that toxicity you, you don't ignore it, but you confront it. You don't have to run from it. And I've seen a lot of people who have chosen, oh, I'm just running. You don't have to run. You're, you're not the one who's in the wrong. Uh, even if that toxic leader is going to try and make you pay the price, you're not the one who has to run. They're the one who's, who's out of order, not you. So in, in John's world, uh, he's definitely saying don't run. He's saying don't ignore, but he's certainly also saying do not imitate this type of behavior. Even though this person's a leader in the church, you do not want to be like that. The person is toxic. And one thing I've noticed about toxic leaders, toxic leaders rarely change. Rarely. Sometimes they do, but they rarely do. You say, come on, that sounds so pessimistic. You're a pastor. Can't God change anybody? Sure, God can change anybody. But if the person is not willing to change, if the person is not willing to look at this list of 14 things that describe them and say, you know what, I think I need some alteration of my personality, a lot of toxic leaders, like, they would say, I'm not changing them. There's nothing wrong with me. You're the ones who are wrong. 
they'll say. And so I have found toxic leaders rarely change. Rarely. Sometimes they do, but it's rare, um, even in the church world. And again, I could tell you things, and I don't want to tell you them because you would be so shocked and so disillusioned. You'd probably say, hmm, maybe we should all stop going to church then. <laughs> but it's, only, it's rare. It's rare. These are rare things, but they're so destructive, you see. And the wield so much influence and so much power and hurt so many people. But it can, be, it can be one person. It can be one situation. It can be one diatrophies. Uh, and finally, uh, he, he ends the letter and he says, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Standard closing of a letter, yes, uh, but very relevant for today. Do you know why? Because today, churches, some say, are emptying. And especially this, this group of people called the nuns, who I've referred to in the previous ser- series, as young people, 20s, 30s. They may have gone to church as a child, as a teenager, and then they get to be 20, 30 years old, and they say, this is rubbish. And they say, this is like Santa Claus. This, is, I, this faith is irrelevant. This is, come on, you people reject science and you know you believe in fairy tales and resurrections and angels and all this stuff and this is you know and they walk away from the church they walk away from organized religion and they say you know if if you're asking me my religious view if there's a box that i can check that says none n-o-n-e well then i'm a nun okay so they're you're they're not they're not nuns as in catholic nuns (laughs) they're nuns as in n-o-n-e all right, and so there are there are people who are saying the churches are emptying because the nuns are growing, uh, and they're growing in population, they're growing in their expression, and the churches are emptying. And why do we need church anyway? Why do we need to, you know, if we want to hear a good preacher, well, we just have to open our phone. We can hear a great preacher. We don't have to come come and be in, with people and all that. We can sit at home and we can turn on you know, whatever preacher we like and whatever evangelist we like, and we can even sing a few songs at home and we say, here, we at church, you know, no problem. Well, when the way John is talking, and again, it's first century, but what he's saying is, you know, I want to be with you face to face. I could write another letter. There's a lot that I could say to you in today's terms, you know. I could communicate with you in another medium. I could use social media. I could use... I could message you electronically somehow, you know, pick your, pick your way of doing that. I could do that. And he, he, if he were alive today, he'd say, well, I could do that. But I, I want to see you soon. And I want to talk with you face to face. There is something about gathering together and meeting face to face, isn't there? The, and it's even, it's still, you know, I know we can do that electronically, but you're looking at a two-dimensional screen when you do that, right? So I've done, I've done premarital counseling with couples. One's in one country, one's in another country, and I'm here in Canada. Okay, that's becoming more and more common because couples are meeting online more often. And sometimes they're in different countries. They say, well, so who cares? She, she can be in Finland, I can be in Germany, and we'll get married in Canada. What's the big deal? You know, we're 22 years old. No problem. The world's a small place. We get on a plane. We're all connected. No big deal. And so I always tell these couples, I say, you know, I, I really want to see you face to face. I know one's in Finland and one's in Germany and I'm in Canada. 
but I really want to be with you face to face in the same room. You know why? Because I can see things that they can hide. You know, on that screen, you decide how much you want to let the person see, right? You decide. I mean, you're not going to show them, you know, from top to bottom, you, 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 unless you really want to. But typically, you're going to show them a little thing like this. And you could be, you could be loading a gun in the other hand, you know, while you're talking on the, oh, yeah, yeah. And you could be loading your, do you know what I'm saying? Like, there's a, there's a way to, to use that medium, but it's not quite as effective as being in front of a real live person and all your senses are moving, you know, and you, you, can, you can even smell them, you know, you can observe their body language, you can, everything is there, they're right in front of you and there's something about being with people and gathering with people that's powerful. It's more powerful than any, any electronic way of doing it. It, and I don't think it'll ever, ever be beaten, this whole thing of people gather together. And that's what the church is. It's people gathering together. The word ecclesia in the Greek, it just means a gathering. And people gather, and they, they gather together, and they gather together regularly, and they're with one another, with the central focus being Jesus. There's something very, very profoundly powerful about being together. You see things, you learn things, you observe things, you, you, you suffer together, you celebrate together, you grieve together, you laugh together, you do life together, and there's something extremely powerful about that that cannot be beaten by any other system, in, in, in my view, and I think in John's view as well. I hope to see you soon. We will talk face to face healthy community healthy church healthy followers of Jesus who are actually walking in the truth they understand that this thing is personal it's not private it's not you can't be a christian and be by yourself you can't be a christian and sit in a in an isolated place and be isolated all your life you're going to find it very very hard to grow like that you need to be around other people who are trying to serve the God that you're trying to serve because they can encourage you, because they can pray for you, because they can hurt with you, because they can be happy with you, because they can, they can comfort you. There's this whole one another thing that happens when you begin to experience healthy, healthy, healthy church. And this is what John is after. This is the whole gist of his message. He wants people to be walking in the truth. So you, you, you are going to meet these diatrophies in life. I have a feeling you have met them already. <laughs> and maybe it's a little surprising, a little shocking that they actually exist in churches. Well, I wish it weren't so, but indeed it is so. But what we're to do is to walk in the truth, to not ignore, to not imitate, but to confront this type of toxicity and to remember healthy church, healthy church is always, always personal. Would you stand with me?